whatever world you want to be in, if you want to become a journalist and you want to be uh, involved in political reporting, then study that field. If you want to be a foreign correspondent, learn world history. Pay attention to current events. It, it doesn't just drop on you one day and all of a sudden you're an expert in something. You have to work at it. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Great time with our guest that we're going to be having on here. I call him journalist extraordinaire. The father of journalism in St. Louis. I would say he is. You know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not. You look at his resume. He started his career in New Jersey. In 1959, moved to Germany as a radio reporter for the American Forces Network. Was reporting there in several cities until 65. Relocated to Baltimore to work in TV news. Came to St. Louis was on Channel 2, which is where I met him as he was a speaker at a D.A.R.E. graduation for the school I was principal. Mm -hmm. Then he went to KDNL Channel 30, was on St. Louis on the Air, on the KWMU. He's now a full-time author. He's an active journalist for over 60 years, print, radio, television, 12 regional Emmy Awards for writing, reporting, producing. That's crazy. Inducted the St. Louis Media Hall of Fame a media person of the year by the St. Louis Press Club. He has, I think it's five books now. I'm going to have to get corrected by him. He also has an honorary doctorate degree from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Don Marsh, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Arnold, thank you so much for having me. That's quite an intro. You make it sound like I was in the witness protection program <laughs> when I moved around. <laughs> really? <laughs> no kidding. I don't know. Did you do anything? Yeah, right. <laughs> Probably did nothing. That's the way it's been going. Mm. No, and this is your fifth book, correct, Don? Yes. My fifth, and I'm working on a sixth right now, as we speak even. Those other right? books, Coming of Age, Liver Spots and All, A Humorous <laughs> Look at the Wonders of Getting Old. Wait, wait stop right there. I've got <laughs> starting to get a couple of those. I'm not too happy about it. Okay. And then flash- I thought it was pretty risky trying to do a humorous book on getting older. <laughs> nothing funny yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then Flash Frames, Journey of a Journeyman Journalist. I love this one. How to be rude politely. I love that. And then what was, you just released a book in December, or maybe it was September. What was that first novel that you wrote? Uh, yeah, two, uh, two of them came out last year, uh, Arnold, late in the year. One was called A Wink and a Nod. <clears throat> that was my first fiction attempt. And then shortly thereafter, The Damned and the Doomed came out, which is the one that's being featured at the Jewish Book Festival this, this coming, next, I guess, a week from Sunday. Right, April 18th at 7 p.m., Don's going to be interviewed by none other than Karen Foss. Now, I sent Karen a note this morning telling her uh, that you were going to be on the show today, and I gave her our Internet link, so hopefully she's listening in now. So hello, Karen Foss. Well, I, hope she, I hope she is. I she do. Had, uh, we had been in communication late in the week, and uh, she said she was going to be traveling. Ah. She was not aware of this interview at that time. But we have to get together to coordinate how we're going to approach this thing on 
a week from Sunday. But you two are old. And we'll do that next week. She said she couldn't do it this weekend because she's traveling. But you two are old. I don't know where she is. You two are old friends, though, Don. It should be just like talking to an old friend, I would think. Yeah, old friends is a little bit misleading. We're old, both of us, to be sure. (laughs) She would admit it as well. We've known each other for a long time. Uh We were colleagues in the sense that we were both in in the same field doing the same kind of work. Mm -hmm. But we had uh, very little contact during that time. Run into each other occasionally. Yeah. We've become more friendly in the last two years, I would say, in terms of regular contact than was the case before that. But certainly, I respected and admired her for all the time she was here. Yeah. She dominated this market. Oh, yeah. It was just crazy. She, oh, yeah. Everybody knew who Karen Foss was. Oh, yeah. Nobody knew who I, I was. No. But she, she just it was a remarkable presence mm-hmm. and a remarkable uh, personality here in St. Louis. And I would still like to go on a cruise, one of her cruises, that she has a cruise. Uh, yeah, she does a, a Karen Foss cruise. Wow. Or, yeah, which KSDK or something. I think I she's cooking something up now. I don't know if it's a yeah. cruise or whether it's a land visit to right. uh, Europe or someplace. But, well, yeah, that's a pretty good gig. Yeah. I, I don't know if <laughs> yeah, you're aware of her abilities as an artist. She's a wonderful oh, artist. I yeah. wasn't aware of that. Yes, yes. Oh, she's terrific. Absolutely. Uh, and she pops stuff up on uh, on Facebook from right. time to time. Hmm. If you went to her page, I'm sure you could find some. Right. She lives in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. I think she went down there to become another Grandma Moses, but she's pretty darn good. Does she have her, her own colony down there, uh, the, the Karen Foss art, Foss art Colony? Wow. It's probably something like that. She makes friends very easily, yeah. so I'm sure she's got a lot of people with a lot of common interests. And what a one... Uh, Santa Fe, that whole area. I, 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 I hiked through the mountains of New Mexico when I was younger, and it. I think it's the most beautiful country beautiful. there, part of our country that there is. So she's living the lap of luxury out there in the mountains. Beautiful, beautiful time. Yeah, yeah. she puts uh, post pictures from time to time, mm-hmm. photographs of of sunsets and what have you. Right. Just the desert air, as clear and clean as it is, it just produces some wonderful sunrises and sunsets and. She and her husband photographed them also. So, anyway, she's a remarkable talent, and she's also a terrific writer. She is. She's got it all. Mm-hmm. And I wish she were still around here so that we yeah, could yeah. Uh, take more advantage of it. Welcome to the Karen Foss uh, interview show here. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, why I know, not? but it's why true. Not? I know you're right, though. You're right on all that, Don. She is a, a remarkable yeah. lady. Yeah. Now, your book, yeah. The Damned and the Doomed. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. Te- tease us a little bit so people can get some tickets for the uh, St. Louis Jewish Book Festival spring uh, virtual pop-up on April 18th. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I can without my hope, because there are a lot of surprises in the book. <clears throat> Pardon me. Very basically, it's a uh, story that begins with two brutal murders in a city in the east. It could be Baltimore. It could be in any east coast city. And the only, the only similarity between the two victims is that both of them were German. There's no indication that they, they knew each other, they had any kind of traffic amongst themselves at all. They lived separately and they didn't have any mutual friends. And this case is given to one of those crusty detective types who is very persistent but also very frustrated. There's nothing to go on. But he does find a little clue in which uh, he learns that these two guys, these two victims were in St. Louis at the same time. And he thinks that's a coincidence or maybe even more than a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So uh, he comes to St. Louis to see if he can find out any more about it. Then we flash back to Nazi Germany 
the Holocaust years of the 30s, and right up through World War II, following a family, that a Jewish family, that experiences all the horrors of the Holocaust. And that's part two. There are three parts to the book. One is the damned, those are the, the, the victims. The doomed are the people who are subjected to the horrors of Nazism. The third part is the damned and the doomed. And that brings the two sides together because the dots get connected in that final segment when you see why the, uh, the Nazi past is related to the murders that this cop is investigating. And so he comes to St. Louis to try to figure it out. Now, I'll leave it at that. It's, it's got, as I say, a number of twists and turns that I think are fairly interesting. It, it is. I'm in the middle of part two right now, the doomed part. And, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it thoroughly. The question for you is, how is this book different from previous ones that you've written, the one that you wrote that was a fiction book? It's totally different. This is, I call this one a, a mystery with history because it's very clearly tied in. The, the, the longest segment is the, is the second segment in which we follow this family during those, the, those years of the Holocaust and prior to it. The, the other book, is, is really a favorite of mine because it was the first. It involves an 80-year-old retired journalist who is called upon by a friend, former colleague, to find her missing husband. He's been missing for many months, and she calls upon him because it's become a cold case for the police. They're not interested. After a period of time, they have nothing to go on. So she thinks this guy with his contacts and with his investigative skills maybe can learn something about this. And as it turns out, he is able to to pursue some various leads that he has. And again, there are some big surprises in this one. He gets involved in, in a fentanyl operation and some things going on in the community that no one knew about. He stumbles through this stuff and has some success in his investigation. So what can I say? It's hard to... It's hard to talk about it without uh, giving too much giving away, away, and I think that right. would be a mistake, because, as I say, right. there are a lot of surprises. Bu- buy the books, folks. Buy yeah. the books. Right. And enjoy them. Yes. Enjoy reading them. Yes. Yeah. I, I think they are enjoyable. This is not this is not Ernest Hemingway. I don't know if you've been watching that this week. But it's not Ernest Hemingway. It's a guy trying to, for me, trying to find my way in this new field, this new career of mine. And I'm learning as I go along. So I think, I think they're good stories. They're good yarns, as we say. And I think particularly as we're getting into a time when some people will be taking vacations and looking for stuff to read, mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing I think they would enjoy oh, at yeah. the beach or the lake or wherever. Right. Now, I got a kick out of uh, watching uh, an interview that you did with someone about your switch from being a news person to now being a fiction writer. And you were having a lot of fun working in fiction because of what? You can make up what you want. <laughs> Go ahead. You, you create your own world. This is really terrific, particularly at, at a time when a lot of us can't do a lot of the things socially that we would like to do. Mm-hmm. You really can sit in a room and make up your own world and have people do whatever you want them to do or not do what they should do. You name it. You, just, you have a free reign. And it's very entertaining. As I've been writing these things, the first one, The Wink and a Nod, I had the ending in mind before I did anything else because I knew I had to construct everything to lead to that 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 particular ending. Hmm. But as I was writing it, I 
keep going on these uh, paths that I had not intended to use at all. But you, you write and say, this might work and that might work. Mm-hmm. So you're reading it along with writing it. You're doing both at the same time, sometimes not knowing where you're going at all and having to patch together a repair, like fixing a, an inner tube. You have to put a patch mm-hmm. on it to get to where you want to go. So did you have a general plan, like an idea for this particular book, The Damned and the Doom, and, and then it just, like you were just saying, just evolves and writes itself? Mm-hmm. I, I, had a, I had a basic plan, <clears throat> but along the way, there are digressions. You, you think of something, say, you know, why don't I just go there and and do this for a little bit. Put a character in a, a place you may not have thought of. Mm-hmm. You find yourself in the midst of situations that uh, might lend themselves to something other than what you had originally had in mind. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah, again, it's just kind of uh, flying by the seat of your pants. You do have to have a, a basic idea of where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just keep writing and you'd never get there. Mm-hmm. But uh, you do find these little digressions along the way, which are fun. Now, my respect for you as a journalist extraordinaire goes way back. I, I watched you religiously. I, I didn't watch Karen Foss. I, I occasionally, when I was uh, in the Kansas City area, I did watch her there uh, when she was on that channel up there in Kansas City. But my questioning that I'm going to turn to, Don, relates to your career and things that you think back on that impacted you. And th- This first question is, you've interviewed a lot of people in your time. Which interview, which what person or groups of people stand out in your mind, and why do they stand out? Wow, tough question. I've interviewed a, a number of, of, of presidents over the years, okay. and uh, that's always an impressive thing. The, uh, the whole setup, just getting to the interview, the Secret Service, and the preparation that has to be made, both for the interview and also to, to just get to the point where you're sitting down with these people. It's always very impressive. Who can not be impressed by by president of the of the United States but i get this question a lot is there one that that, that stands out and this may surprise you uh, if i really sat down and thought about it i'd probably come up with a bunch of them but the one that i keep going back to is really the first celebrity interview i ever did which i did in germany back in uh, 19 august of 1961 was just after the Berlin Wall was under construction. August 13th, 61, is when that that began. Anyway, I was a rookie at the time. I was uh, 22 years old. And my bosses sent me out to interview Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Okay? Wow. Here's a 22-year-old kid go, to go interview these two superstars. Why did they send me? Because they knew that these guys were very tough. And none of the veterans wanted to put themselves in that position because they knew these guys were lousy with reporters. Mm. Anyway, I went to uh, Frankfurt Airport to, to find them. And I should preface this by saying that we had found Dean Martin's son, who was an Air Force pilot, and he was stationed in Germany, but Martin didn't know where he was. In those days, you didn't broadcast, the troops didn't broadcast where they were for security reasons, the Cold War at, at its apex at the time. So they just an APO address, the post, post, military post office address. So my organization found the son for him. He and Sinatra had just fin- finished a movie or doing something in London. The movie was Soldiers 3. In any case, the deal was if we found the kid, then we would get to interview these guys. They agreed to that. So they sent me out, and I 
found him in Frankfurt Airport, one of the biggest and busiest in the world, wandering around opening doors. I didn't know where they were. I opened one door at one point and walked in, and there's Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and some guy in a, like a pilot's uniform, all nursing drinks. I hope he wasn't a pilot, but in any case, there, there they were. And so I identified myself and started the interview, and I said, this is Don Marsh in Frankfurt with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. And Sinatra says, not me, pal. Okay. And I started, this is Don Marsh at Frankfurt Airport interviewing Dean Martin. And my first question was, Dean, as a father and as an American, what do you think about what's going on in Berlin? They're, they're building this wall. And he said, it's rough, man. It's rough. Are we finished? <laughs> that was the interview. Thank you very much. Wow. So right. that wasn't my favorite interview, nope. but it's one that I'll never forget. And it really soured me on interviewing celebrities for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I thought they were all jerks. And a lot of them are, but a lot of them are not also. A lot of them are gracious, yeah, yeah. and w are, are willing to talk to people. I'll tell you another story about a celebrity that uh, you might find interesting. Tell me if I'm rambling on too no, long. No, 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 please. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Fonda came to town when I was in Channel 2, and I was doing the uh, noon news at, at that time. And he was uh, appearing at the American Theater, as I recall. And I've forgotten what pre play he was on. He was playing a, a president. But I've forgotten the play. In any case, he comes walking in with an entourage of two or three people. And uh, they came up to me and said, look, this is in the 70s, by the way. They say, look, talk to him about whatever you want, but don't mention his daughter, Jane. Why? Because he gets a lot of questions. She's taking all this heat for her trip to Vietnam, and he just doesn't want to get involved in the dialogue. <clears throat> so... <laughs> of course, one of the things I asked him, I said on air, I said, Mr. Fonda, I'm told that you don't want to talk about your daughter Jane. Why not? And he said, what? <laughs> repeated it. And he said, who told you that? And I said, the gang, what brung you? <laughs> the, the guys that you're with. And he went on, and it was a very emotional thing. Aww. He said, let me tell you this. He said, Jane is my daughter. And I love her. And I'll talk about her any time, any place, to anyone, as I say. She's her own person. She does what she thinks is right. I love her. She's my daughter. I thought it was terrific. Great answer. You know, what a great way to, he didn't want to talk about it, but he did, and he did it in a very emotional, heartfelt, and I thought a very important way. Yeah, very loving and respectful way. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what these guys thought. One of the things that I found in working with German, I was a civilian working for the uh, American Forces Network. There are a quarter of a million GIs, and plus their families over there. And uh, so this radio station's the service was to uh, keep th these people informed. They'd have some place to turn that they could understand. Mm -hmm. It also taught a lot of Germans how to, to speak uh, English, by the way. <laughs> but I had opportunities often to interview generals over there. Mm. And um, always the general's aides would come up and say, don't ask him this and don't ask him that. And then when they say that, which is stupid to say to a reporter, yes. of course, they, you know, let, tell them to, let them tell you to shut up if they don't want. Let right. them tell you yeah. that they don't want to talk about right. it. And always the generals 
they didn't get to be generals by uh, being stupid or surly or impolite. Right. They got to be generals because they're smart. And so they would always have an answer to any of those questions. Mm-hmm. And, and it just almost never failed that the aides would take that approach. So I think that helped me, you know, when I had an opportunity to talk to Henry Fonda, and they said, don't ask him this. It turned out to be work out even better than it might have had they not said anything. Now, as you look back on your time in the industry, what has changed in journalism, in your opinion? Mm. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Everything. Going back to my first days in television, we go out on a story with the reporter, me, and two, sometimes three, cameramen, a sound man, and what have you, about 600 pounds of equipment and steamer trunks that you'd have to lug around, mm. tripod and lights and all the rest of it. Now the reporters go out and they hold the camera in their hand and they do all their own editing in the field. In our day, it was uh, film, of course, 16-millimeter film, and which it became videotape, but now it's, it's, everything's digital. And now I don't want to sound like the old guy saying it was better back in the day. I don't know as it was better. It was just different. I think there was, a, I think there was a, 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 more of a journalistic approach even to dumb stories. Today, it's, it seems like it's all crime and the weather on local news. You have five or six minutes of the shootings, then a weather break, and then maybe a feature, come back to the new weather, do the sports, and then end on the weather. There's not much content, and that's, that bothers me. I know that the uh, homicide problem in St. Louis is a big one, but just by reporting each homicide as it happens and not trying to find out why it's happening, reporting on that, I think is the big difference. We used to do it a little differently back then, and I'm not saying we were the greatest, but we were also, you were just learning our craft back in the 60s. It was relatively new in those days, particularly uh, local news. So, uh, yeah, that's been the big change. The technology, I mean, I've reported live from Africa and from Central America and from Europe with a signal bouncing 40,000 miles into the sky and then bouncing back to go three miles from downtown St. Louis to uh, the KTVI studios or the KDNL studios. So the technology has changed. And there's such a turnover in personnel anymore. Channel 2 has been a big exception in that. They have a lot of people who have been there a long time. But I look at Channel 5, and every time I look, there's someone new. And then I look uh, the next night, and they're gone. They don't have time to learn the turf, and, and uh, there's no institutional memory. So yeah. those are the kinds of things that, that I look at. Yeah. It's, it's fairly disappointing. Right. I think the, the biggest asset that a station has, radio or television, mm-hmm. are people who who you know the players and know the turf. For instance, if Gene McNary got run over by a truck, God forbid, yeah. today, two-thirds of the reporters in St. Louis wouldn't know who he was. He was a pretty important guy around here for right. 20, years, 20 years. And, and so they, they, would, they would ignore the story because they didn't know him. One of my former employers, St. Louis Public Radio, uh, we just lost him having one of those moments now. I have all the time, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you'll know who I'm talking about. The right. perennial candidate who died while swimming last week. Bill Haas. Oh, I can't believe it. Bill Haas. Bill Haas. Yeah. yeah, Bill Haas has been a fixture here for years and years. And he, he was a nuisance. He was a pain in the neck. He was smart. He was committed to this community, and whether you agreed with him or not, he was there, and he wanted to make a difference. He sued everybody. If, yeah. he didn't, if they didn't agree with him, he'd go off on a tangent and sue them. 
including my former employer, St. Louis Public Radio. He died, and everybody else carried the story, whether they liked Bill Haas or not, except for St. Louis Public Radio, because he uh, sued them at one time. And I thought that was very petty. It is. If they're ignoring stories like that because of, they feel that he was an affront to them at some point, yeah. what else are they not covering? We're going to have a continued conversation with Don Marsh, who's the author of The Damned and the Doom, and from my uh, vantage point, journalist extraordinaire. And uh-huh. Hillary Gann is going to be joining us. She's Director of Literary Arts at the St. Louis Jewish Community Center, going to be talking about the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival spring virtual pop-up. Don's going to be there and being interviewed by Karen Foss. That's April 18th at 7 p.m. On the line also is Hillary Gann. She's Director of Literary Arts at the St. Louis Jewish Community Center. She, I love this, Mark. She has been an ecologist, line cook, candle maker, package tester, and museum educator. Her debut story, The Pragmatist, was selected as the 2010 Million Writers Award Notable Story. That story and Transit have been both been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Her major non-literary inspirations include Bob Dylan, oh yeah, Nico Case, Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey, an incessant orange cat named Harry, and an odd but lovable goofy second set of claws named Bruce. Wow. You know, what inspiration? It's amazing. Is that Jack Daniels over the rocks or what? I'm not sure. <laughs> Hillary, what do you say to that? Usually with Diet Coke. Okay. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Welcome to St. Louis. Thank in, you, guys. In tune. We're glad to have you on, and we're going to piggyback with you and Don on this interview here. Tell us a little bit about the festival for those people who may not know about it. Absolutely. So every November, we have a almost two-week-long festival, usually about 12 days. We book about 30 authors, and we get some really great names, partially because of our radio and TV contacts. And so this year, we are planning another live festival. But in the meantime, we've, we're bringing you this April pop-up where Don Marsh is headlining. And did his book just coming out just coincide with uh, how do you guys make connections? Oh, yeah, great question. So we offer all of our content is either by Jewish authors or the book itself has Jewish content. And so in his case, because it's so centered around the Holocaust and that history, it was a really good fit for us. And Don, have you ever done any of these kind of festivals before? I know that you're just into the writing gig now, but have you ever done anything previously? No, I haven't, but when you go over Hillary's resume, I think she should be a headliner. <laughs> That's quite, it's quite impressive, very impressive, as a matter of fact. Now, part of the, for those listeners out there who are gathering their curiosity, previous festival speakers, okay. and Mark, you'll be interested in Alan Arkin, Alan Dershowitz, Richard Dreyfus, Leonard Nimoy. Oh. We've also had William Shatner and the Star Trek crew combined there. Neil Simon. Henry Winkler. So it's a very impressive wow. group that's been there. So how does how does this work? Last year, I know because of the pandemic, you made some changes in how the festival was delivered because it was in person, and obviously you then had to go online. How has that worked out for you? That's actually been really positive because we were able to still connect all our readers. So we obviously switched to a virtual platform for 2020, but that meant that we were able to get some people in the audience who might otherwise have not been able to come like friends and family of the presenters or people from St. Louis who live elsewhere during November. And also we were able to pull some people who because of their schedules or because they live internationally weren't able to otherwise make it. So the virtual format gives us that 
opportunity. So last year, Barry Sonnenfeld, for example, was maybe a person that he had a pretty packed schedule, but because it was a virtual opportunity, we could include him. So that's it's been really nice, and because of that, we're planning to do that as a backup for this coming year, just have a hybrid option just in case, but also to make it more convenient. And the dates of the festival are what to what? We'll have November 7th through the 18th, so I think it's a Sunday through the weekend to a Thursday. And this pop-up festival, it's, uh, those are virtual on four, four different evenings, and Don's Correct. is on April the 18th. And uh, discuss a little bit about how people can get connected to that. Absolutely. So our tickets are available on jccstl.org. It's $36 for all four nights or $18 for the single tickets. And they can just log on through our website. You sign up for a community account. Anyone can have an account to access our virtual platform. You don't have to be a J member in order to do that. So you can join in. And we'll have four whole nights authors every night at 7 p.m., including a women's panel and tech writer Stephen Levy, who did Facebook the Inside Story, and then a climate-focused program on the 21st with a former Massachusetts state senator, Solomon Goldstein Rose. So that's jccstl.com, folks. Now, Hillary, as a writer yourself, you it's helping you, I'm guessing, in directing and organizing this book festival? I think so. I I know a little bit about publishing because of my writing background, so I know how the pipeline works. It's making it easier for me to identify people from indie presses that might we might not otherwise notice if they're not getting a ton of media attention, but whose book fits our needs really well. And then I also can have the opportunity to see it from the writer's perspective, what's going to make them comfortable, what's going to help them connect with the audience. And the writing world is moving a little bit away from readings and towards this new conversational model, especially with virtual programming. And that's it's friendlier, and you get a couple more perspectives and some more background on the author, and I think that's a cool direction that we're headed. Now, Don... Um, but the other... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, though, is that that's definitely not all there is to the festival, and I have a committee of 50 people (laughs) that help me, like, put on this festival, and I really just want to make it clear that even though I'm a writer and have those skill sets, a huge part of the skill set is is dependent on these helpers who, like, mobilize the whole community and put on this festival, and a lot of them have been doing it for 20 years. So I'm really lucky to be joining that, more joining a team than anything. So is it just the festival that you do, or is there more involved with your title as Director of Literary Arts? We also put on a used book sale, so we we had to postpone that through 2020, but in August we are planning to go ahead with it, so the dates for that are... August, Sunday 22nd to Thursday the 26th. And we take donations of books throughout the year. We're going to start opening those up again this month and then sell them to help benefit our cultural arts department. So a lot of the, the programming that comes through the J is benefited by that used book sale. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been saving this question with Don. And, Hillary, you can hear this also. And, and Don, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you were up in... Vermont, I believe, at Middlebury College, correct? Right. Now, my question is, did you go to the Breadloaf Writers Conference? Ooh. I, I, I did not. 
but I, I rubbed shoulders with Robert Frost a couple of times. <laughs> he used to wander around campus at Middlebury. He lived there. Obviously. And so he was a, a, a fixture. But no, I did not attend that conference. Are you kidding? I had no idea what I was doing, where I was going, how I was going to get wherever <laughs> this was going to be when I was uh, 18 years old. Believe well, me. Still trying to find the restroom is what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but you must have had some kind of inkling of you have a background in English and in writing. So you must have had some, what was the impetus in high school, or did you read a lot? Did you write a lot, or were you drawn to that for some reason? I've always read a lot. Boy, have I read a lot during this uh, pandemic. But my, my goal was to become a journalist. My brother was one, and he was six years older than I, and I admired, I admired him and the field that he was in, and was always leaning in that direction. As a matter of fact, I followed him overseas. When I went to Germany, it was because uh, he was over there as a civilian working for this uh, this radio operation, and he advised me that at one point that there was an opening over there. If I could get over, I might be able to land it. And so I sold my car and whatever else I could do to raise the money and wow. flew over and learned when I got there that, that the opening had been filled the day before. So it was a question of hanging out for, I think it was three months before another opening occurred, and I was able to get, it was able to get it. What do you remember about Robert Frost other than him hanging around campus? Was he like one of those groupies? Did he go to the local coffee shop or something? Did people, were they listening or following him? He would, when he was on campus, it was coming primarily to, to, to lecture. And he was as old then as I am now. I remember looking at him and saying, man, he is really old. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that really stings now. When I yes, think it about does. It. <laughs> <laughs> really so, Hillary, you, you were in California, I believe, before you came to St. Louis, correct? That's true, yeah. Okay, now, so was, what was the draw to come here other than toasted ravioli? A part, like, that's a big draw, you guys. It is. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> my husband's from here, and he grew up, like, going to the J, playing T-ball for them. That's and <laughs> But part of what precipitated my move was I wanted to transition into a book-oriented career. So in Los Angeles, I was working for the Natural History Museum there, and they are an amazing institution. I loved my work for them. But one day they had, they opened this new um, department and they announced it to all the volunteers. And they were so excited and so had so many questions and really wanted to be part of the, this new thing. And I was looking around and I was like, oh, that is how I feel about books. <laughs> and so part of it, I, so I transitioned, I took a couple um, a little time off to start a family and write a book, which did not go anywhere, but got a job in Brentwood at their library. And from there, I moved here. And it part of my draw here is there's such a robust literary community in St. Louis. It's the You have three library systems. They're huge. They pull amazing authors. So many people here go to the libraries and participate in the programs, and I really wanted to be part of that and part of St. Louis community. This is such a hometown. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. such a place where people value local things and being part of their neighbors' lives, and I wanted to tap into that a little bit. I'd just like to ask a question. Hillary, what is it about the Jewish community and it's certainly the case here, but in other places I've lived as well, that the community always is cohesive around the arts, whether it's uh, books or 
other kinds of artwork. It just seems to be ingrained in the Jewish psyche to be supportive of the arts. What do you think that's all about? That's a good question. I I couldn't say with any uh, certainty, but I think just that education is such a big part of Judaism. And in education, you're exposed to the arts, and it's part of expressing your love for the world and your creativity. And I think that is just, it finds a home in places like the J very easily. It, it can be traced back centuries. This has always been the case, it seems, if one looks at history. That's a great question, Don. It's going to be the in-tune show with Don March. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Guest, guest, guest co-host. <laughs> No, but those are, those are really interesting questions. Yeah, they are. So, Hillary, as you look at the festival and your experience there so far, where do you see it going? Do you have some dreams or aspirations or goal for the festival other than, obviously, like last year, the pandemic and getting it online and things like that? Yes and no. I'll confess to you that I this is my second month in the job. <laughs> so I still have a lot to learn about what we do and what the book festival is already. But... I like I said, St. Louis is has, is such a rich literary community, and I I'm hoping that one day people will just think of the J when they think of that literary community that will be ingrained in it the way that the libraries are, and be a really com- a community pillar for everyone who loves and creates and like imbibes literature. And one of those pieces, one thing that I'm interested in this year at least, is more representation of genre literature. So like sci-fi, mysteries, that sort of thing, because I think those are the categories that have huge waiting lists at libraries that, that people really love to read for entertainment and that they follow mm-hmm. the genre, and I, I, I would like to find a way to celebrate those. That's a great comment there. Don, you've got all this wisdom, and I'm being very serious here. I, I really ad- admire you and what you've done in the industry. You're going to give some sage advice to some budding writers, and you probably get this question all the time. When I talk to people who are experts in the field who have been in it and they've done it, they've seen it all, and they've lived it and breathed it, what do you tell budding writers or journalists? What advice do you give them? That, that is particularly, it, it's all communicated through the written word, even though it's different today. It's more digital and you know online and what have you. But the, you, you can only get better writing by writing. And also reading and also st- studying whatever world you want to be in. If you want to become a journalist and you want to be uh, involved in political reporting, then study that field. If you want to be a foreign correspondent, learn world history and learn. pay attention to current events. It, it doesn't just drop on you one day and all of a sudden you're an expert in something. You have to work at it. But the bottom line is that communications is, is to such a degree based on the written word You have to learn how to really become as proficient at that task and that skill as you can. Hillary, piggyback off that question. Sure. Uh, I I do want to repeat what Don said, is that, like, work is the thing. One of the things I love to read about is this idea of dedicated practice. And what's interesting is the research around that shows that talent is not really a thing. Talent always ends up being something that you have put in over time. It's always hard work. It's all the people who seem like they're talented at a young age just started working earlier. And so that's, you got to really just 
put, I call it my butt in chair rule. <laughs> you have to put your butt in the chair and do the thing. And you have to make time for it and just really take it as a calling. Really spend your time pursuing it no matter what. That's what I would say. Malcolm Gladwell, $10,000, right? right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I hope people uh, do take advantage of the opportunity to attend the four days of this Jewish Book Festival. It's going to be a good event, and in November, regardless of how it works out, it's going to be an excellent event. And it sounds like with Hillary uh, at the helm now, it'll be better than ever. And I, I certainly hope so. But take advantage of the, uh, the opportunity to attend these, these affairs. Hillary, give us the details again on the spring pop-up festival coming up. Absolutely. So it starts Sunday, April 18th. There will be one program every night through Wednesday, each at 7 p.m. We're starting with Don and his new book, The Damned and the Doomed. And then Tuesday, we'll have tech writer Stephen Levy, interviewed by Charlie Brennan. Monday is a women's night panel with Hillary Levy Friedman and Janice Kaplan. And then Wednesday is with climate activist Solomon Goldstein-Rose, all at 7 p.m. And you can get more information at jccstl.com, jccstl.com. Hillary Gann and Don Marsh, thank you, thank you very much for coming on St. Louis in Tune. And come back and visit again, please. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker. 